Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software World Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Michael Yip. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, and I run a lab uh, in robotics here. Thank you for joining us. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memory that you were interested in science or technology? Do you remember anything about that? So, yeah, uh, I've been, you know, science since, uh, and technology has been an interest of mine since I was very young. You know, I think it's very common for people to have their start building things with Legos. Um, but also, um, you know, I remember when I was in middle school taking a visual basics course and I did admittedly didn't get very far um, in it but then you know that piqued my interest and I remember working on uh, back in the day the first edition of BattleBots which is this robot fighting competition was out and as a high school student uh, my friends and I would come together and design and try to build one of these robots to enter into competition. Wow that's interesting. So if I ask you, what is the first robot you built? Do you remember it was an undergrad school or grad school? Yeah, so yeah, so the first robot that I uh, built completely from scratch uh, was this assignment from our undergraduate program, which was at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And um, this is a robot, you know, before we had made things out of Lego Mindstorms, but um, this was a robot that we had to design from ground up, and it was um, uh, almost like an assembly line to sort bolts and nuts and uh, look at the material content and look at their electromagnetic uh, properties and try to figure out what is what and um, sort things. It was fun. It was a group of um, uh, a group of students uh, in a group of three, um, and we were timed on speed how fast we could do these. Great. So uh, I'm curious to ask you, what is the most simple and beautiful equation inspire you while you work? Something maybe fascinates you in terms of equations. Yeah, I like to go really simple on this um, because I think, uh, you know, just AX equals B is just a, such a simple but um, powerful equation and I think um, the thing that you know kind of turned on a light bulb for me was uh, when one of my uh, math professors actually it's the very uh, very famous uh, Stephen Boyd um, he he commented that you know you should actually look at the numbers because the numbers actually mean something um, when you look at the equation ax equals b and it, it can tell you so much about uh, what's going on in your system and so um, I think that that equation people study over and over but you know once it clicks and you realize just how powerful it is I think you gain a deeper appreciation for just everything that I could possibly uh, do for you as a roboticist and um, just as an engineer in general great that's great so before going to defining soft robotics from experience, I, I, I see your lab had a lot of interesting aspects for research. For example, if you can tell us in, in, in automated surgery and helping animals, I think if you can to give an audience um, a perspective, a glimpse, what are you doing uh, in your lab? Yeah, so my lab is pretty uh, multidisciplinary in the sense that um, the focus at the end of the day is always towards uh, medical uh, applications and surgical applications. We're really interested in automating surgery. But towards that end, a lot of co different component technologies come up. So we've been working on a variety of uh, different types of robot designs and also algorithms to control those robots. A lot of our work in robot design involves highly dexterous robotics that might be like continuum robots 
um, or snake-like robots. For example, we're working on a new design for locomotion uh, for a snake-like robot that uses Archimedes screws propulsion, something that you'd see on uh, uh, military marine vehicles back in the 1950s that weren't so popular, but uh, once you combine them with uh, snake-like dexterity, um, you can have a very interesting locomotion platform. Um, on the other side, we've been looking at how we can take continuum robots, which are quite well characterized right now, um, like tendon-driven continuum robots, and use them for new unexplored applications. So like you mentioned, one of the things that we've been really excited about is working with the San Diego Zoo, which is the largest zoo in the U.S. and quite uh, world-renowned. Um, to use those surgical devices for uh, for uh, endangered animals, specifically uh, rhinos, to perform um, surgery on. On the other side, I think uh, you know, working in this domain of uh, small, intricate, soft continuum robots presents a really big challenge in terms of control, right? And so, a lot of classical techniques aren't really um, possible or they're, or they require such heavy computation that it can't be done in real time. So we've looked really hard at um, how do you uh, control robots um, so that they can move uh, uh, and, and make uh, decisions quickly about how to plan and how to move and uh, how to adapt themselves to new environments. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I think that you said a lot of interesting point and I would like to go first for uh, how you define self-robotic from your perspective. Because now I think one of the interesting subjects is how we can use multi-materials, like a human being. We have the bones and, and tissue, and how we can have a, compli a compliant and a stiff material so that we can have certain behavior. So since you work in a, uh, in a different spectrum, what is the best definition you can give for self-robotics? Yeah, it's, uh, I think self-robotics has been really good at calling everything a soft robot for that matter. Um, and it's not like wrong to say that, you know, e even if I have a rigid link robot with, you know, a uh, series elastic joints um, that traditionally was not called necessarily a soft robot, I would classify it under that category. So in terms of a broad definition of soft robotics, um, I would, I would say that it's, it's any um, electromechanical system that uses uh, compliance uh, in its uh, physical form to to, to its advantage, right? Um, whether whether that is for sensing or actuation or both, um, for perception uh, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. And if I ask you what do you think maybe is the most important question when you using a soft material with a stiff material, what is the challenging to combine different material with different mechanical properties? So, yeah, I think that the, the uh, there's there's still um, quite a uh, quite a art to how you leverage the compliance. Uh, pro compliant properties of different materials um, for your objectives in either sensing or actuation uh, or both. Um, I think that hasn't been translated uh, completely yet uh, into uh, as into um, a science. So I think that that's one of the major challenges. Um, the other thing is that there's issues with uh, interfaces between um, soft sensors and um, the, the structures that they're trying to measure and how they connect to electronics and, and um, other rigid, uh, rigid items. So I think um, there's still a lot of uh, open challenges. And then of course, I think one of the biggest challenges still in terms of which area that we still need a lot of work on is sensing um, because most of these soft robots are infinite dimensional and uh, to try to even try, try to control them uh, with a, with 
a small number of sensors is already very challenging. So having more sensing, more bandwidth, uh, more coverage, I think is uh, something that is going to be a challenge uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. I can't agree more on that, but I, I think I'm, I'm curious to ask you for, because yes, you're right, there is a challenge in censoring, the uh, sensor design. Do you think that we have to, uh, for example, to have to design sensor network embedded in the soft material? Um, what could be the, ch- the challenging part in the short term and long term for design a sensor for, for robotics? And also one of the challenges, what kind of behavior you expect? For example, we need uh, material that behaves like viscoelastics. You have the linear elasticity and then there is damping so they can achieve interesting deformation. So how do you see the integration between the sensor design with the material behavior, expected material behavior response? Yeah, I think that that is, um, that is really an open question, right? Uh, I, also, you know, the, the idea of how, how, whether you need it embedded or not. I, I am under the uh, category of people that you will need some embedded information. Um, you can't just use cameras, um, external cameras to be uh, sensing uh, what you're doing because I think the whole point of soft robotics is that you're um, in contact with things, right? So when you're in contact with things, that uh, means that you want to be able to measure the interface uh, uh, of contact. So um, yeah, I think uh, the it, <laughs> I have to say it's just an open question. Yeah. So maybe I'm going to ask you, what is an area or direction y- you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree? I think that, I mean, there is attention to, to, uh, there is still like a decent amount of interest and attention, but I think that there can be more in terms of physical simulation. Uh, there's a couple of groups that have really, really impressive, uh, uh, physical simulators, um out there you have things like sofa which is more for you know was first adapted more towards like the tissue um and surgical simulation um but they're uh, more the fem type simulators but then you also have position-based dynamics and things like flex uh uh nvidia's flex that provide you um uh uh really stable physical simulation of different types of um, uh, different types of uh, concurrently different types of materials so like fluids interacting with soft objects interacting with hard objects all in one and I think the reason why uh, I think that this re- require more effort is because like I said it ties back to the sensing part if we want to do really good control but with limited sensing on a system that is high dimensional or infinite dimensional uh, you're going to need to have some pretty good models of it unless you buy into the um, fact that deep learning and a lot of data will solve everything, which I think is unlikely to occur, especially if uh, you're introducing these robots into new scenarios. So to have a really strong uh, simulation platform for different environments uh, is something that I think needs more work. Um, and there are some great groups out there doing this, uh, uh, you know, you know, a popular one recently has been the material point method. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it is going to be a collective effort because these things can't be done just with one labs. Uh, it has to be built over a long period of time with a lot of people contributing to it. I'm glad you mentioned material point method because I have the perception, I don't know if you agree, that it's, it's really underappreciated in, uh, in software robotics community. Because you mentioned some techniques, uh, for example, in SUFA using it based on FAM, but sometimes uh, when you work with a mesh, sometimes it's in, in cutting or um, any something like remesh typology and remeshing, so sometimes in unstable. And I think material point method sometimes is just to get advantages to handle large topology, topology changes in, uh, in soft robotics. But I don't know if you agree in that that uh, such technique, which is missionless techniques like material point method, 
is underappreciated in software robotics community. Do you think that, or do you not agree about that? Yeah, I think that uh, it it is gaining popularity, but it is still uh, these mesh-free methods are still underutilized in soft robotics, despite their many benefits. And um, I do love SOFA. We have a paper using SOFA for um, doing vision-based haptics. Um, but uh, it is also, you know, a technique that focuses on different things, like um, uh, the resolution and accuracy of the internal forces and uh, measurements versus the stability of the method. Whereas something that is mesh-free uh, really has a, a better ability to meet boundary conditions on position uh, and uh, represent what you're seeing um, in a real life, like from these robots, uh, much easier and much more stably. Yeah. But again, to think about that, uh, I used to work also in SUFA, but I think one of the issues when we work for, for viscoelastic material or anisotropic uh, behavior Sometimes material point method, it could be advantageous in handling a different measurement, a different location when you come to anisotropic material. I don't know if you, that's something maybe we can discuss later if you're interested in, but um, uh, I don't know. Do you ever think about how we can simulate anisotropic materials? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with your sentiment um, that there are going to be preferred methods uh, to be used. Um, and yeah, MPM is uh, is possibly a um, or is gonna probably be better in many scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you, what are the most misconception you have witnessed about soft robotics or something concerning while you're working in the field? You know, I think uh, the in terms of misconceptions about. Uh, soft robotics from the researchers point of view rather than the general public um, from the researchers point of view is that uh, I'm concerned that there is a lot of work that has been done in the past that might not have been considered soft robotics or might be tangential to soft robotics that isn't being uh, leveraged especially in the control um, side uh, and I think that it's good to, uh, it's good for researchers that are entering the field to appreciate, you know, the, uh, the new videos and the cool, uh, designs that are coming out. And even like what is shown in, uh, some of the, um, uh, it, and, and yeah, what is shown in some of the videos of these, uh, robots, uh, moving. Um, but I would caution that they also take a deep dive into, um, what has been done in the past, um, in terms of control literature, uh, modeling literature, so that they have an understanding that um, some of these, uh, some of these, um, some of these robots have a lot more options that they that, that to control them and to model them than they might uh, originally uh, think of if you're just looking in the soft robotics field. That's a good point as well. I'm curious to ask you about the modeling because you already have a lot of work in this, uh, in this research line. Which approach you have to take for modeling? Because it, it sounds modeling is really, really not easy task to to have it in uh, to describe with soft robotics as well. And I don't know which approach do you think could be visible uh, for modeling soft robotics. Yeah, I actually, I I. I actually look at the process of um, what is your objective. Uh, so like, I don't really s subscribe to any one modeling, you know, approach, but I would say like, what is the objective of your robot? Is it just to go from point A to point B? Or is it to like minimize uh, interaction forces or energy dissipated into your environment um, by doing some work uh, in the process of doing some work? Um, and that, will drive, you know, what kind of modeling you need. For example, in surgical robotics, uh, a lot of the applications, it doesn't, we don't really, uh, we don't really control or care about what the shape of a catheter is or a continuum robot is in its body. We mostly care about where the tip is of that robot. So in that case, modeling can be as simple as 
um, estimating uh, like the linear um, mapping, like the robot Jacobian, right? The same thing I was saying about AX equals B being a fantastic uh, um, example of something that goes pretty deep. I mean, this is the robot Jacobian is an example of that. And so um, just modeling that will tell you how input actuation can result in output and effector displacement. And that can basically solve the problem in surgical robotics and many of the um, uh, control applications. So why bother, you know, completely modeling the entire robot uh, when you're not using that information? Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah. that's an interesting point because maybe there's argument here. You focus on the trip and I agree with you. It could be more easier. But when you neglect the, the rest of the morphology or the shape of the actuator, because it may be sometimes a change depends on actuation, if it's cable or pneumatic, and depend on the cycles you do. Do you think that the shape, when it changes across the special domain, it could affect how the tip will be according to different uh, operations? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, no, you bring up a really good point, and it does. Uh, I think the, the problem that I always refer back to is how much of this uh, effect is going to be driven by phenomenon that you fundamentally cannot predict or uh, control. A uh, really good one is friction. So um, if I, you can do a decent amount to like get rid of some, uh, to estimate some amount of friction, but uh, a lot of modeling literature in terms of accounting for friction uh, is going to still have tens of percentages of error um, remaining after modeling it, right? And so the rest is just kind of unmodelable, uh, just because you don't have the, the sufficiency to, um, to know, uh, to be able to measure every um, frictional interaction that's going to happen, especially on a soft uh, body with um, continuous contact and changing contact. So um, I would say that in the cases where I think there is value to increasing the modeling effort, um, it should be driven by obviously the objective that you want to achieve. Um, and in those cases, I think it's really important to have really uh, good models. Um, but at the same time, to be cognizant of uh, that what which you cannot sense, right? So if you know that your model will only be as good as some tens of percentages of error in accuracy, uh, I think you'll have to ask yourself whether it's worth it, you know, and, and can you still achieve your objective and have at least some um, decent uh, understanding of safety of your robot uh, without having to do uh, complex modeling. Um, I'm also curious to ask this question because I think many students are listening to that and there is maybe a struggle when it comes to very complex system, cobbled system. That, for example, we have compliant and stiff material and then encapsulation system like that and you, ha you have a, a large structure function and you don't know which physical parameters of this equation is related to or which one is significant. In, in such system like that and hard to do develop a model do you think, for example, using um, machine learning techniques can give you insight as what is the significant uh, physical parameter from the transfer function? Yeah, so I can tell you what we do in my lab, which is that uh, we go as far as we can with classical models. And then uh, when there are parts that we find are too difficult or too... Um, uh, yeah, it, we try to go as far as we can with classical models until we have some delta left that, you know, um, would just be too great of an over undertaking or we're just unsure about how to model. And then we can uh, look at machine learning in that sense. The problem with using machine learning from the get-go, obviously, is that it's uh, the problem of explainability, right? And, um, it, you know, I think the data show can show you trends, but it doesn't, uh, but the model itself uh, is fundamentally unexplainable. So, um, 
you know, when we're talking about uh, issues like how safe is your robot, how often will it um, not complete a, uh, or, or deviate from its control uh, objective, things like that, um, using neural networks and only neural networks can be uh, dangerous. But yeah, so from the from our experience in medical robotics, if I was to control a medical robot to perform a certain procedure, um, let's say it's uh, performing a cardiac ablation in the heart where you're burning tissues in the heart uh, in a certain location where it's the disease is, uh, if you ask it to follow a trajectory and it deviates from that trajectory significantly, but you can't explain why and you can't. You, and you use your neural network to say, uh, to tell you how you should control the actuators um, to, to follow a trajectory, but it keeps deviating. Uh, that's when you have a very dangerous situation, right? Because you don't know how to, how to uh, you can turn the system off, obviously, but uh, you don't know how to move forward. Whereas if you had a classical method, um, then you can always find some uh, bounds on the the accuracy and the performance of your system and say like at least within these bounds i can guarantee that it's going to be uh, moving in this direction right so so uh that's you know that that's a really very big distinction an important distinction when it comes to safety critical applications yeah i, I can't agree more this point i think this point is very important yeah and it brings me to the control. What is your take about the traditional control techniques for uh, continuum robots? Do you think uh, you are satisfied with, with the current uh, applied control techniques for soft robotics? Or do you think we have to enhance something in it? Designing new control techniques? What's your take about the, that? When, when it's something simple, like a, well, I say simple, but like a continuum robot um, where you're looking at its deformation along um, an axis. I think the models out there are quite good. I mean, just just the the work uh, that was uh, done in the early uh, uh, early two thousands and or late two thousands, I think mid two thousands, we'll say, um, by Webster and uh, uh, and Dupont and those folks. Uh, They've basically laid out all the parameters that you would need to solve exactly for the robot geometry and dynamics. Um, the question is whether you can sense all of the parameters, right? And you can estimate it. So I think from the modeling perspective, like when you have a simple enough robot, like a continuum robot, I think the modeling is there and where you should be focusing more on uh, how do we bridge the cap from the model to real world, which involves uh, innovations in sensing and estimation, which might involve you know the use of data like neural networks. When it comes to really um, non-uniform heterogeneous uh, uh, morphologies, uh, that becomes uh, much more challenging, and that's where I go down that route of saying that we need more work on the soft robotics uh, simulations because. I, I, I'm, I think that's a very quickly uh, a losing battle to try to uh, find some geometric model uh, that fits an uh, arbitrary morphological system uh, versus just using a simulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's also a good point, yeah. Um, and that leads me to the question about, uh, do you think in, in a community we have to go for, for designing uh, more robust, uh, smart material, which can be work as actuator and sensor. Because sometimes we see the currents of robotics is pretty slow, and sometimes the forces, it depends of course on actuation style, but for example, the forces in smart materials is also n not very high in, in micro-Newton, for example. But from your lab, do you think this issue you have where you have slow response and sometimes high forces, do you think there's a trade-off between the response time and the mechanical performance when you work in your project, or you don't have this uh, issue, or you have to get around it? Yeah, you have to. So we definitely have this issue all the time, right? Uh, there's not going to be an ideal actuator out there. And like you said, we're mainly fighting um, 
three three things. Uh, uh, for any actuator, it's uh, ma like maximum force, maximum strain, and bandwidth. Uh, and so, and then you know I, the sensing component that you mentioned is important as well uh, to be able to uh, be able to observe you know what the uh, the actuators are producing. Um, so actually towards that end, my lab is working on something, not a actuator technology, but a way to look at different actuators in a machine learning perspective to say, if I was to, um, try to, uh, build a soft robot, but I wasn't really interested in focusing on like actuator A versus actuator B. I just wanted the behavior of the robot to look at, like something or have it generate a certain amount of force or strain or bandwidth. It would be great for something to tell me, well, you know, these class of actuators is the right uh, class or the most likely class that will give you the solution that you want. And of the class of actuators, this form of it and these, uh, this configuration of it, like this length of it, this thickness of it, um, uh, this actuation, uh, uh, voltage or whatnot is what you'll need. That will be, I think a huge benefit to, um, the soft robotics community, especially novice, um, roboticists who are just getting in to the field. And so we're working on that in our lab, um, kind of to bring these challenging, uh, uh, design questions to something that is much more manageable. Mm -hmm. Great. Before going to the challenges you face or limitation, what's your inspiration for uh, upcoming project in your lab? I was curious to ask you, was there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical results prove something else was interesting for you or well, I didn't, I didn't thought this would be different from what I imagined in Siri. Well, I will say like the one thing that we had set out to do originally was make a colonoscopy robot that would um, crawl its way into the body. And uh, I had seen enough inchworm designs that I felt like, you know, if it was going to catch on for inchworm designs, I think it would have. There are some companies that still that make it, but uh, I think that uh, that design path had kind of moved on. So uh, we were looking for something new, and uh, our first thought was these Archimedes screw um, methods, which is basically like a screw. And I think the funny thing is that um, it locomotes pretty well. It's just the idea, uh, selling the idea of this form of soft, flexible robot, with but with treads on it, uh, navigating through their body, basically fell flat to any doctor that we talked to or any investor that was interested in this as productizing um, uh, for the large market of colon uh, cancer. But um, in that failure, uh, we started shopping around just like where could this technology, uh, this locomotion method be used. And uh, that's when we had ended up talking to folks at uh, NASA JPL and they said, well, uh, this is really interesting locomotion method that we might be interested in trying to do for our space mission to Enceladus, which is one of the moons of um, uh, Saturn. And so, um, you know, where you see some failures in uh, matching uh, technology to application, you know, you just got to open your mind and, and uh, see what other opportunities are out there. Sure, yeah. So, um... Coming back to your challenges, what are the challenges you face already in your research or something you're passionate about to do or prove in the robotics community? Um, I'm really, really interested in trying to get what we've been doing in the surgical robotics community, which a lot of it is in like the soft robotics domain, to be translated into real-world practice. And unfortunately, it's been really hard. And it's not, obviously the technology is still growing, but uh, when we're talking about translating technologies in robotics into the real world, there's so many different things that you have to consider, right? The economics is one big portion, like how, how much more expensive is this going to be to implement? Um, it, it, interestingly enough, the idea, the problem of, 
job uh, loss by replacing people with robotics is not that significant of an issue in domains where um, we are just not meeting the need of our society. So like surgery is one of those where we actually have a shortage of doctors right now and people are waiting months to get surgeries, right? That they really need. So that is not so much an issue, but um, yeah, the economics of it, uh, the policy of it, um, regulations, even if it's not medical, there's going to be regulations from like food, uh, food safety. If you're working with food, like uh, some of these soft robotic um, manipulation companies are working with. Um, so I think those are like the real challenges and there isn't really a clear cut way for somebody that is doing their PhD, um, writing research papers on new designs and controlled architectures to, um, to learn how to translate that into practice, right. And, and benefit the greater society with it. Right. Uh, I, I would like thank you for bringing this point because I think that's something we struggle we, when we design something, for example, and you neglect the um, end user. For example, you design, for example, cochlear implant with toxic material. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe some people argue it's a proof of concept, but I'm not sure this is the right approach. You, you have to consider the right element and designing and make sure it ends uh, the requirement for, by, by the end user. So that's excellent point, but I'm curious to ask you, do you think who is responsible for that? Since every BI have to do have to do that in their own, or is there like community regulate that, or the funding have to do a regulation when you do the project? How do you imagine solution for this uh, issue? I think it's going to have to be um, from all sides, but really I think that it also falls on each individual researcher to recognize how their technology is going to be translated into society. Um, I think that there should be more education in robotics towards tr tech transfer. Um, so like, how do you get this product out there? I mean, we are engineers after all, we are technically applying science. So, um, you know, that we should, know even if it's not us doing it we should know how this is going to get translated because like you said it does affect what we look at uh in terms of research and what methods we choose that are more likely to be translated than others i'm curious to ask you this question because you bring a really good point when you work in the lab it's different sometimes from the real world and this is like a gap here so the question is how you can make sure the stick transfer realistically speaking is going to be successful because sometimes we have issue in research, reproducibility, and the, you can't, that's something we, do, we know, but since you concerned about that, how we can make sure, or how you can make sure this can be successful translation from the lab to the end user? Yeah, uh, one way to actually address the um, reproducibility uh, is obviously like take a page from the computer science community and make sure that we have common evaluation platforms across uh, different uh, technologies and have people use them. Um, that's one thing we're struggling with in uh, surgical robotics uh, is we don't have a way to, we have a lot of people working on autonomous surgery and autonomous continuum robots for surgery, but we have no way to cross validate each other's work. So um, I think that's gonna be really important to uh, accelerate what we do um, and, and and uh, build up on each other's research, which eventually is going to be what causes maturity in a technology and uh, push it out into uh, the, the market. Yeah, that's a good point. So if I ask you, what are the biggest technological roadblocks that face soft robotics? Something you see in a short term, a long term. You see there's something here we have as a, as a technological roadblocks for the moment. Yeah, I can definitely in the long term, um, because it's been on my mind recently, it's uh, just uh, robot skin, basically. I think uh, there's so much, uh, it's, there's so many things where you need fine, uh, fine sensing to know how to um, 
uh, had to interact with. And the challenge with robot skin is uh, one of uh, trying to make it robust, trying to make it high resolution, and trying not to increase the volume that you uh, that you add to your robot. Because the higher density, the more that you need to have electrical wires and so um that's that's kind of my pet one of my pet peeves is seeing a sensor array but none of the wires that come off of it because the sensor might be really small but the the wires are just like a huge tangled mess um afterwards so um i and unfortunately i don't i i think there are some really promising technologies that are being developed out there but um, that is really a major roadblock uh, um, to to us. Uh, on the sh on the short term, um, I, I think that you know, I, I, in the past, I think that the soft robotics community in the past few years was uh, the terminology was so new for this type of um, community that uh, they were in their own bubble, right? We were in our own bubble for a little while, but um, I'm seeing more and more integration of techniques from uh, machine learning, from control theory, uh, from uh, like materials modeling and things like that. Um, that goes beyond just like, here's a new form or configuration of, of uh, a soft hand. Or, or a soft four-legged creature. And I think uh, that is um, really promising. So I would say that um, while that was an original concern, I think that the short term, I think soft robotics is on a good track. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about the nonlinear just because we know that sometimes nonlinear just and soft robotics bring opportunities. And I'm curious to ask you what you're working in your, robo in your robots what kind of nonlinearities you want to keep or remove for having a certain behavior? What what could be useful or not useful? For nonlinearities. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, you know, I think uh, the nonlinearities can be really good at being like a transformer of uh, motion. So you know, bistable mechanisms is really good for translating. Um, uh, uh, translating speed and power, um, a continuous speed and power into something that's kind of on and off, but you know, high impact. Um, so um, I think there's mechanical nonlinearities that work really well in that sense. Uh, there can, you know, probably be a, there's a, there's an equivalency in sensing as well um, to try to do nonlinear sensing and cater towards areas where. Uh, you need better uh, resolution um, uh, or you need redundant resolution uh, or redundant sensing on certain elements that are critical to uh, how your software bot uh, gets observed uh, in a control loop. Um, so I think that can be advantageous as well. Uh, in our lab, I think we keep those in mind when we design robots. Um, but at the same time, uh, we haven't necessarily leveraged them very much uh, in our practice. Mm -hmm. Great. So we call it end. We have a few questions left. The first question is: When you have uh, uh, receive a funding for four or five years, the question: How you ensure the developed uh, technology in your lab is going to be beneficial to the community or or in the end of the day, or a company, you have a corporation or something like that, how you ensure that the technology you develop or the work you do with your student is going to be beneficial? Is this something you bring to the table, discussion like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you basically uh, nailed it on like the two ways I think that you can benefit the community the greatest. Number one, you make your uh, materials open access and you try to make it as easy as possible for people to reproduce what you've done, whether it's mechanically uh, or um, algorithmically. Um, so obviously, like uh, almost all of our work uh, 
uh, UC San Diego has been open source and you can download file, like you can download CAD files and, and our controllers and our neural network uh, and our training for it and our data sources all on GitHub. And the second thing, of course, is keeping an eye on commercial opportunities. And I say this not because I think that um, that you should make money off of robots, which is, you know, nice, but uh, it's because really like that's the only way it's going to get truly disseminated. So, um, you know, it's hard these days for startup companies to, uh, it's, it's hard for um, any company to uh, secede in today's climate, but I think you have to keep the, the commercial aspects of what you're doing in mind um, when you're working on research, because either you are going to be the one that uh, has to push it out or um, somebody else will, but you're going to have to be able to capture that person's um, uh, eye in terms of the commercial uh, capabilities of what you're doing. That's a really good point. I think to think about the commercial aspect is it challenging, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say like also, you know, there there is obviously a strong need for basic research in terms of materials and and component technologies. Um, I guess the thing that I would like to advocate for is that after that research is over, that you have a plan to show how it can be used in a system or, or how the system can be used in an application. Yeah, and that's immediately to the second question in this uh, term how we can enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas. And what I mean about that, because sometimes when you have new ideas or new techniques, uh, sometimes it's not really welcome because it's sometimes we know there's a gate gatekeeping for terminal ideas or approaches. So how we can make sure that we have intellectual inclusiveness in terms of different ideas and everyone have the room to bring their own approaches and techniques. Yeah, good question. Um, I will I will say that like, kind of being in our lab has many different like has feed in many different communities from machine learning to, uh, to you know soft robotics to, um, uh, manipulation, and arguably with soft robotics it's pretty inclusive already. Um, uh, but but uh, there's always going to be important uh, there's going to always be work towards that right so. Um, I, I do think, you know, like what I mentioned before in terms of having some well accepted metric for comparison will always help because you can't argue with numbers. If your new idea shows benefit in certain areas, uh, according to some established, um, uh, metric or some established, uh, uh, test bed, um, then fundamentally, I think you ha have, uh, been, uh, you'll have a much easier time uh, to be recognized regardless of, uh, you know, um, what people's opinions are. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think that there are more and more um, journal opportunities and publication opportunities coming up that are more focused for soft robotics. And I think that uh, being able to publish in those and with a high citation count for soft robotics, I think getting more coverage on some of the more focused um, uh, publication areas uh, will be uh, will will help with with this issue. Yeah, that's a good point as well. So, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Um, I think that it is. <laughs> important hmm. I think I think ego is I think ego is a loaded term I, I mean if you are if, if you believe in yourself right then you will do everything you can to prove what you're doing is worthwhile but if you are looking at it from the perspective that you know you that you're right but you don't go through the effort to prove why uh, then that is uh, that can also be that is kind of also very egotistical and uh, that is not good. So um, 
Yeah. So while working in academia, what is something you have to maintain in terms of quality, something you have to maintain in your journey as an academician? What does quality would be? I would say like for um, successful academics, and I try to emulate this as much as possible, is to always find the, um, always kind of keep asking why. Um, it's a really simple question, but really difficult to answer, especially if you've ever been in a PhD, like qualifying defense or something like that. And somebody asks you like, you know, why is this equation this way? Right. I think the more you ask questions like that, the more you uncover the real problem um, or the real gap in knowledge that we don't have. And then you can actually start solving a problem that will fundamentally be more useful for a wider range of people. And the interesting thing that comes out of that is that if you keep asking why and the fund the problem becomes more fundamental, the solutions to those problems becomes simpler and simpler as well, right? So, so um, I think that's an important quality to keep as academic uh, as an academic, um, uh, because it drives you know what research you do, it drives the impact that your research will have, um, the the amount uh, the 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 breadth of people that will be able to understand and and connect with the problem that you uncovered and uh, and are trying to solve, uh, I think it's really important. I can't agree more on that. That's a very good point, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, was it personally or professionally, and was it likely changing for you? Yeah, I would say, um, hmm, this is a really hard question. <laughs> I would say that I know this might feel counterintuitive to a lot of people that are trying to get started in academics, um, but don't focus on quantity, but focus on quality. Uh, one of my graduates, uh, as a graduate student, one of my mentors told me that, and um, somebody that in one paper he had a hundred thousand citations, so. Uh, he knew what he was talking about and uh, he had gone away for a year and a half just to think about one problem and just come up with, try to come up with a solution to it. And so I think uh, that was a really important piece of advice uh, that also translates to, you know, my, uh, uh, my uh, comment about quality or, or what quality is important. Um, because the more you think about a problem and uh, the more you kind of dive deep, uh, and you're thinking about the quality of the problem you're trying to solve, um, and rather than just how many papers you can publish, the more you're going to make a bigger impact and the more um, people will appreciate what you've done. And uh, in the long run, it's going to make a far bigger difference uh, than the number of publications you have. That's really a wonderful advice. I think this is something I hope as a community we consider. That's really excellent advice. Thanks so much, Professor, for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much.